So I want you to take your Bible this morning and turn to Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter 2, this is a very familiar passage that we're going to look at, and we're going to consider this morning what the church is all about. That's my title, what's the church all about? And already I'm sure in your mind you're beginning to think of all the things that the church is about. I was just talking to Wayne and his wife, and we were talking about church and his church that he grew up in and my church that I grew up in. And it's so easy to come to all these ideas of what church is all about. Sometimes we can lose sight of what God designed it to be. So this morning, we're going to consider from Acts chapter 2 what church is all about. Let's read from verse 36. Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the very word of the living God. Jeremy, as he was introducing some people this morning, uh, asked what your major was in college. We at home, we don't really have minors and majors, but we do have undergraduate degrees. And the one that I uh, took was graphic design. Have we any graphic designers here? Wow, one, yes, Aubrey, I love that. We have one graphic designer represented. Well, I went through my undergraduate degree, qualified as a graphic designer, and worked in a design studio for five to six years. You know, part of my role as a graphic designer was to create brand identities, to communicate visually what a company was all about. And companies would come to us, and sometimes they would come as a startup, and we would give them a whole new brand. And other times you would have companies who had existed for a long time, and they would come to us for a rebrand a relaunch, a refresh. And you know, the first thing that we did wasn't go to a bit of paper and start doodling out logos or all of those things. Rather, 
we put them through a workshop. We put them through what we called a brand workshop, a process whereby we took the company owners back to the very heart of their business. We forced them to think through what their business was actually about, what it stood for, what made it unique, and why it existed in the market in which it did. And often rebrands were because companies had forgotten these things. There was a disconnect between their essence, between the heart of what they'd done and what they looked like. There was a disconnect uh, between their function and their identity. And often those companies, by and large, still functioned. They still went about doing somewhat what it was set up to do. But the owners had lost sight of its original purpose. And therefore, as a graphic designer, those workshops were so helpful because understanding the essence of the company dictated the aesthetics of the company. When it comes to the church, the same can be true. We here in Grace Church, and you guys as college students, you don't need taught about what the church is. Our pastor is undoubtedly the leading expert on what the church is. He has taught it all through his life. He has written books about it. You guys are so well taught on what the church is. So we don't need taught this morning about what the church is, but we need reminded about what the church is. We need reminded about what the church is all about because it can become about a lot of stuff. It can become about a lot of things. It it, it can get this idea into our mind that it becomes somewhere that we merely attend on a Sunday. I go to college. I go for coffee. I go to church. And yet, church is so much more than that. I just want to remind us this morning, nothing profound, nothing you haven't heard before, but I think it's good to take a big picture look at what the church is actually about. You know, the most common New Testament word for the church is ecclesia. And it's a word that, when it's used, always refers to people. It's not used to refer to property. It's not used to re- refer to programs. It's not used to, prefer, to refer to particular practices. You see, the church is about a person, and the church is about his people. The church is not a, about a property, and we have an incredible property here. The church is not about programs, and there's incredible programs that are run in this church. The church is not about particular practices, which can be so helpful. But at its heart, the church is about a person, and the church is about his people. The church is about the person of Christ, the living head of the church, the one who Paul tells us loved the church and gave himself up for her, the master builder, the chief cornerstone the one who bought it with his own life's blood. The church is about the person of Christ. But besides that, 
The church is about the people of Christ. Church is about a called-out people, a people unique in this world who live to worship Christ and serve each other. I think it's so important that we get that into our minds this morning as we think about what the church is. It's about Him, and it's about His people. Paul, as he gives a description of the church in Romans chapter 12 and verse 5, and he speaks about the great diversity in the church, he says that the church is many, and though they are many, we are but one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The church is unique. It's not like college. Colleges rise and fall, but the church is something that's going to exist for eternity. It's special. It's sacred, and it's something we should care about. The value of the church is seen in Christ's sacrifice for it. When Paul gives the great marriage illustration, he says, what's marriage all about? Well, he says marriage exists to show the relationship between Christ and His church. And, and as he exhorts husbands how uh, to, to love their wives, he exhorts them to love them as Christ loved the church and done what? Work for it? No. Love, love their wives as, church, uh, as Christ taught the church? No. Love their wives as Christ died for the church. Christ cares about His church so much so that He gave His life for it. The church is valuable, and when we see the value of the church in Christ's sacrifice, we can see something of, what, of the vision of what the church is all about here in Acts chapter 2. As we come to the end of Acts chapter 2, we find that the church is in prototype form. It's in its infancy. It's just a few days old. It's not yet fully formalized. It's not yet culturally contextualized. Here it is in its rawest, purest state. And in the six verses at the end of Acts chapter 2, we find two features that marked the first church and help us better understand what the church is all about. I'm not going to give you a list of ten things or five things. I want to give you just two things to think about. What's the church all about? In these verses, we see that the church is about commitment, verse 42, and we see that the church is about community, verses 43 to 47. The church is about commitment, and the church is about community. And that's not the summation of what the church is all about, but having these two big picture things in our minds and working hard on them will help us go a long way in thinking biblically and better about the church. As we come to the text, you'll notice that verse 42 starts with an and. The narrative just keeps on going. And you've got to back up a little bit and understand that this verse links to what has gone before. What has gone before? Well, the book of Acts has, opens with the Lord Jesus risen. He then ascends. He leaves a mandate for His apostles to fulfill. As Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit descends at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, and incredible things begin to happen. Pentecost happens. 
Incredible foundational signs begin to happen. The apostles begin to do amazing things. God is at work birthing this new entity called the church. And as we come to verse number 12, You see that in response to what's going on, there were people who were mesmerized and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What on earth is going on? There was mesmerization. And then in the very next verse, there wasn't only mesmerization, but there was mocking. The cynics looked at it and said, they are filled with new wine. These apostles, they're drunk. We don't need to worry about what's happening. This is just the sign of drunk men at work. And so Peter, what does he do? Peter preaches a sermon in verses 14 to 40. It's a sermon of exoneration. In verse 15, he says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's the third day. So he exonerates the other apostles and said, they're not drunk. And then uh, he moves into a sermon of explanation as he goes down through what has happened and theologically sets out what God is doing and how this is the fulfillment of what God had promised. And he closes his sermon with an exhortation in verses 38 to 39. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. When we come down to verse number 41, we see there was a mighty response. Of all us as preachers, we all wish that people would respond to our messages like this. There were 3,000 people saved there and then listening to Peter. What an incredible sermon that must have been. And so we have 120 believers at the beginning of Acts, and in one sermon, 3,000 more come to faith, and they believe, and they're baptized. And then what? What did they do then? Well, they went home and got on with their lives. No. You see, verses 42 to 47 provide the answer of what happened next. When these 3,000 came to faith, what happened next? We find that there's no break with that word and. You see, integration follow conversion. Integration follow conversion. They were saved, they were baptized, and they were added to the church. I want to just pause at this point before we go any further, just to, to back up Joey's announcement and what was announced in church this morning. When you ask yourself the question this morning, am I saved? That's where you've got to start. We love that you're in church. We love that you're in crossroads. We want you to be here. You're welcome here, but I, I don't want anybody to be under any misunderstandings this morning. The church can't save you. That's between you and God. You've got to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and Peter here, he doesn't tell this great crowd, God's doing a new thing. God's beginning a new church. So we want you to come along and just be a part of the church. No, no, Peter led with a, a gospel message and he says, repent and be baptized. So I want to ask you this morning, have you repented? Maybe this morning's the time where you realize that, you know what, the church can't save me. I've been coming to church my whole life. 
I need to get right with Jesus. What about baptism? Are you baptized this morning? And we have a church that practices this model 2,000 odd years later, and you know, we should be compelled and convicted about being baptized and then added to the church. Join ourselves to this local church. Commit yourselves. And so verses 42 to 47 give us what the church is all about. Tells us what these 3,000 souls began to do. Let's look at these two things. Verses 42 to 43, we see first of all, that church is about commitment. Church is about commitment. Look at what the text says. And they, who's the they? Well, it's those that Peter has just been addressing. They of verse number 41. Those who received his word were baptized, were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And they devoted themselves. They, they didn't try church out. They didn't drop in or drop out, but they devoted themselves. The word in the original means to busy oneself with, to be busily engaged in. It means to hold fast. The word carries the idea of persistence. It carries the idea of persevering in something. And to add to that, the word is in the present tense, which means that literally we could read this verse, and they continually devoted themselves. You know, a staff member in here, let's back it up a little bit. My wife's been hassling me about I've put on a few extra pounds. I need to do something about it. And so a dear staff member in here has been going to the gym. And he gets a free pass. And he said, I can come with him. And I was like, great. And I made a commitment to him. The thing was, he told me that he goes at 4.30 a.m. <laughs> so I kid you not, I committed to Taylor one Monday morning and I went to the gym with Taylor and kept my commitment. But let's just say my commitment hasn't been continuous. <laughs> I went once, and I told him, never again. 4.30 in the morning is insane, and there's some crazy people at the gym at 4.30 a.m. Here, what we find in the use of this word, they devoted themselves. They didn't just go to church once. They didn't just come together once, and then it was like four or five months later they came back again. But the idea is that continually, ongoing, they were persistent. They were committed to attending and meeting together with these other believers. So these new converts, they were actively and ongoingly engaged with steadfastness in all the essential activities of this first local church. From day one, they were all in, and they stayed all in. That's the key. I was all in at 4.30 a.m. that first Monday morning. I was all out by 6.30 a.m. It can be a bit like that with church. We can get all in. We can go all in. We've got to stick at it. We've got to commit ourselves. There's got to be an ongoing commitment. And I want to encourage you guys this morning. You know, whatever else was going on in their lives of these new converts, they made the church a priority. 
I want to encourage you guys as college students and young adults this morning. It's a good time in your life to cultivate commitment. Let me tell you, the older you get and you get a wife and you get children and you get a job, commitment can be hard. But commitment is required as you grow up, as you mature in life. Commitment is essential. It's a, it's a, having a character of commitment will serve you well throughout the rest of your life. And, and, you know, I know you guys right now are committed to college. Maybe, well, it's the beginning of the semester, so everybody's all in. You're all committed. It's great to be committed to college. But please, guys, don't forget to be committed to the church. Don't be flaky or fickle, or faith, but be faithful in, in your commitment to the church. You see, what can happen is church can be the first priority that gets pushed out in our lives. Well, if I'm going to give anything, I'll, I'll give up the church. Guys, the church loves you, and we love you, and we want, we want to see you committed. Maybe this is the time, maybe you've been particularly challenged about your commitment to the church. Maybe now is the time to check that commitment and begin to cultivate a character of commitment. What do these new Christians commit themselves to? Well, we see here really three things or three groupings. We see, first of all, that they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were continually committed to the Word. They were continually committed to the Word. Instruction was an important part of this new community. They didn't just come together to hang out. That comes a little bit later. They came together to learn. They came together to be, con uh, to be instructed. They were continually committed to the apostles' teaching. Now, what's the apostles' teaching? Well, the apostles' teaching was no different to Jesus' teaching. It was just a continuation on of the things that had been that Jesus had taught. The apostles continued to teach, uh, and their teachings probably varied by what we can see from the epistles and, uh, and the rest of our New Testament, that just like the Gospels, the, the teaching would have been various. There would have been a variety of things taught, theological things, ethical things, practical things. John Stott says, one might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed, and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. We note that those new converts were not enjoying a mystical experience, which led them to despise their mind or disdain theology. Anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Nor did those early disciples imagine that because they had received the Spirit, He was the only teacher that they needed, and they could uh, dispense human teachers. On the contrary, they sat at the apostles' feet, hungry to receive instruction, and persevered in it. Do you know, guys, we need to do the same. We need taught. We really do need taught. We don't know how to figure life out on our own. No matter how smart we are, life is complex. 
And you can learn from the world, but that only ends in disaster. And so it's good at this, this stage of life to begin to cultivate a desire for doctrine, to begin to have an earnest desire to come here, yes, to, to meet with other believers, but to sit at the, the feet of teachers. You know, the psalmist, long to be taught in Psalm 143 and 10. He, he cries to the Lord and he says, teach me to do your will for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on a level ground. He, he longed to be taught. He didn't get to a place where he thought that he had life all figured out. He never got to a place where he, he thought, I'm done with Bible teaching as I graduate from college. So I graduate from learning at church. That's why Austin is going through the Proverbs that are so helpful in providing lessons for life, because we need to be taught. What a blessing that God has given us teachers. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, Paul talks about how their gifts to the church, how God has given shepherds and teachers for what purpose? To stand here and wax eloquent about theology? No. But God has given us shepherds and teachers to equip saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I want to say this morning, guys, your favorite teacher won't always be teaching. But we should still come to church anyway, because it's the Word of God. And God uses all kinds of different instruments and people and you know, some of the most unexpected messages I've heard or helpful things have come from people that weren't my favorite preacher. We come with a desire to be taught whoever's teaching, to be built up and equipped for life and ministry. We need to commit ourselves to sound teaching. I want to encourage you guys, as I encourage my own heart, to continually commit yourself to the times when the Bible's being taught, whether here in Crossroads, first service, small groups, Bible study, when the Word is being opened. You know, recently uh, I've been just talking to different individuals, and we were hearing testimonies. And actually, I'm going to do a straw poll, or a poll. Can I ask how many people here have come to faith through YouTube? One, two. Yeah, okay. There are people, and it's incredible, through COVID, that people came to faith through YouTube. And YouTube's incredible for having access to Pastor John and all these different great Bible teachers. And and YouTube is is a really helpful tool. And, And YouTube should and can supplement our teaching times. But here's the thing, guys, it can't replace church. It can't replace church. God didn't design for church to meet on YouTube. He wants us to be here wants us to sit under men of God and come together and learn together and sit under the teaching of His Word as able men expound it. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the Word, but they also committed themselves continually to fellowship, to togetherness. Look at what it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and these two were linked. You know, the term carry, this term fellowship carries the idea of partnership. It carries the idea of relationship. It carries the idea of communion and, and commonality. 
You know, what a blessing that the gospel brings us into fellowship with God. That's what 1 John 1 is all about, of how that, that we are brought into fellowship with God. But that vertical fellowship works itself out also through a horizontal fellowship with one another. We're not only brought into a relationship with the living God through His Son, but we're brought into a relationship with other believers. And we can often judge our fellowship with others based on our fellowship with God. If we're not in fellowship with God, we'll find it hard to be in fellowship with other believers. This, this word fellowship carries the idea of participation, sharing in common of something with someone else. James Montgomery Boyce describes fellowship as common participation in God. That you and I get to participate in God together. You know, I was thinking about the analogy of, and I'm doing this right now in seminary, I'm taking one online class, and as I look at the class list, there's a, a group of other guys who are also taking the class online, and we're both taking the classes. But this class also meets in person. I'm not taking that class, obviously, but you know, myself and, and another guy who's taking it in class, we're both taking the same class, but only one can participate in the class, the one who is actually there. I can't participate in an online class, and that's what fellowship is all about. It's about participation together. You know, this primitive church was continually committed to personal, interactive relationships with one another. He didn't just come to church once a week, sit in the pew, fill in their attendance card, and leave. But they committed themselves to participating in church life with each other. I want to encourage you guys. Begin to participate in church life. This early church was committed to one another in love. They worked with one another in ministry. They were concerned for one another in practice. You know, as I read the New Testament, it just doesn't appear to me that Christianity was designed to be solitary. There's no iteration of Christianity in isolation. There, there, there's no package when you sign up for the church, well, I want the, the, the teaching package, but I don't want the fellowship package. It comes as one. You know, there's a young story told, I don't think it's true, but it's a helpful illustration. Young guy was fed up with his church and just things that were going on in his church, and he, he was just disgruntled, and he was like, you know what, I'm thinking of maybe leaving. So he, he, he went to see a wise old Christian in his cabin to get some advice, and he told him all the things that were bothering him about his church and the people he didn't like, and ju just all the things that were really getting under his skin, and how he felt that he'd be better off without the company of Christians. As he was speaking, the old man silently took the fire tongs and removed a red-hot glowing coal from the middle of the fire, and he set it on the hearth. The coal glowed for a while, but eventually dimmed and it turned black. He let it sit there a while, and then he took the tongs and placed the coal back in the middle of the fire. Within seconds, the coal was glowing red-hot once again. The young man took the wordless lesson and left determined to stay with the church because just as coals soon burn out when they're removed from the company of the other coals, we will not last long in our faith if we're removed from fellowship. 
Guys, we need fellowship. We need each other. God has designed us and desires for us to be intimately involved in church life. God has designed us to come together for our mutual good. I'm going to reference Hebrews chapter 10. Somebody, I heard this reference yesterday, and they said the COVID verse. I think that's very funny that we have a a verse in our Bible that's labeled the COVID verse. But Hebrews 10 and 24 deals with this very issue. When the writer says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, how? What's the answer? How do we stir up one another to love and good works? By, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do we exhort and encourage one another? By fellowship. The church is about commitment to fellowship. You know, simply church fellowship is an active demonstration of our commitment to the other members of the body. Let me give you that again. Church fellowship and our participation in it is an active demonstration of our commitment to the other members of the body. When we care little about commitment to church, essentially saying we care little about the people of God. Guys, we're designed to be together. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the Word. They committed themselves to fellowship. That was togetherness. You know, they also committed themselves to the breaking of bread and prayers. That was worship. They committed themselves to worship You know, two essential elements here are said to have marked public worship. The observance of the Lord's Supper, which was probably tagged on to part of the mealtime. When families came together and they joined together with other believers, they would have had a meal together, and then they would have celebrated what we know as communion or the Lord's Supper. It was an act of worship uh, where they met together in thankfulness, and alongside that, and often going hand in hand, was corporate times of prayer. Not private prayer, but public prayer, where they came together and they prayed. I know that later on they also sang. But as the church offered opportunity to do these things, the people committed to them. You see, commitment to the church wasn't just about theological education, but personal participation in corporate worship. And that's what Austin mentioned this morning in Big Church. He said, you don't just come here for education, but you come here to join with one another in worship of the one true and living God. And you say, yeah, but I can put on Spotify and worship God myself. Yeah, we can. And it's great to do that. But we see in this this first church that these believers joined with one another in a spirit of thankfulness at the table and prayerfulness. You know, they say they're modeling what Jesus himself done with the disciples. The night before he was crucified, what did he do? Or the night that he was crucified, sorry, what did he do? He broke bread and he prayed with his disciples. He didn't take time to be alone. And I know that when he went to the garden, yes, he fell before his father, but back up a little bit, what did he do? He spent time with his disciples at the, 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 the breaking of bread and in prayer. You know, one thing I've seen about coming here is 
You guys are so passionate about your colleges. We were at TMU yesterday in the soccer game. I was working in the library. I missed the first half, and TMU scored. And oh my goodness, like the, I could hear the cheers from the other side of the campus. I am overwhelmed by like UCLA and the Rose Bowl and that place being packed out and USC. And it's incredible to stand and go to a college game and cheer with your other, uh, your other Bruins or your other Trojans or your other Mustangs or whatever. And you unite together and you cheer uh, and you, you support your team. Something special about that. There's a togetherness, there's a camaraderie, but in a much greater sense with much higher significance, we've got to see the worth of gathering with other believers, not to cheer on our team, but to worship the one true and living God who has redeemed us. What a blessing that we get to do that together, to take communion with thankfulness together, to join together in prayer. So the early church provides us with three things that we should be committed to when it comes to thinking about what the church is all about. It was about committing, commitment to teaching and to gatherness and to thanksgiving. You know, guys, as I look at my heart, let's check our commitment. Let's check our commitment to the church. Let's never lose that sense of commitment. The church, yes, is about commitment, but in verses 44 to 47, we see that the church is also about community. As Luke writes here, the, the curtain is pulled back. Verse 42 is kind of like a summary verse. Verse 43 gives us an atmosphere of all that was going on at that time as Jerusalem marveled at the miracles and couldn't quite understand what, what the Lord was doing, and they were captivated. But verses 44 to 47, the curtain is pulled back, and, and we, we now see the other, the other big thing the church is about. Yes, it's about commitment to the Word and to worship and to fellowship, but it's also about community. Now, as college students, you understand community. I was talking to someone about their dorm situation. We, I didn't live in a dorm at home, and I learned about living in a dorm, and I thank God that I never lived in a dorm. But you know what it's like to live in community, to live together, to eat together, to go to school together. You know what community is like. And here, this early church was marked by community. In, in verse number 44, we see that this community was marked by shared belief. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. That those who received the verse 41 have become those who believed in verse 44. And this belief in Christ brought great unity to great diversity. There was a real diverse group who were here in Jerusalem at this time. And yet faith in Christ brought great unity to this diversity. And those who had come to faith were no longer individuals living for themselves, but they had now become part of something bigger than themselves. They became part, as Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 12, of the body of Christ and individually members of it. They arrived in Jerusalem outside of a body. 
And hearing Peter's sermon and responding in faith, they were taken from the world and they were placed into this special body. And they were now part of something bigger than themselves. And this new community was really a smelting pot of people from all arts and parts. Remember, the context just before Pentecost was Passover. Some 50 days prior had been Passover. It was during that time that the Lord Jesus was crucified. But typically at Passover, pilgrims made their way from all different arts and parts of the country and further abroad, and they came together to, to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And many pilgrims had made that journey for the feast. And so uh, they come under the sound of the, 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 the gospel sermon of Peter. They repent, they're baptized, and they decide not to go home. They decide to stay and join themselves to this community. And so this church was made up of both Jerusalem residents and pilgrims from afar. It really was a mishmash of people, a bit like Northern Irish people among Americans. There's all kinds of odd people here. What does it say in verse 44? Here they are now together. That word together links back to the unity depicted in chapter 1 and verse 15. We see one of the the marks of the first church in those days. Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all 120 and set. And then in in chapter 2 and and, and verse number 1, chapter 2 and verse 1, when the, the, the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Sorry, chapter 1, verse 14. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to pray together. There was a togetherness, and here the word together is used again. And then in verse 47, it's used again. And it seems that the Spirit of God is really really wanting us to see there was a togetherness. You see, unity is a defining mark of this new community. And as the church would grow in the decades to come throughout Asia, and Gentiles would join theologically, there would be no more us and them. There was a oneness in Christ. Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you know, this is the glory of the gospel, a common ground that unites us. What a, what a joy this morning that Christ creates commonality. Christ transcends culture, color, class, creed. I hate to say this, transcends colleges. We have the UCLA section, the USC section, and a, a lone wolf Mustang over here. But it's not about UCLA and USC and Mustangs. It's about Christ. And we're united in Him. And we're, we're a community of believers united not around a college, not even around a church. We're a community united around Christ. Crossroads is a community. And I want us to remember that we don't have competing Bible studies. Our Bible studies just make Crossroads smaller. But UCLA Bible study is still a crossroads Bible study. Canyon is still a crossroads Bible study. We're, we're all part of one community. Valley is part of 
crossroads. You see, this is a community of believers where we're one in Christ. In fact, what, what church do we go to? We go to Grace Church. And what's the very name of this church? Grace Community Church. You see, the church is about community. Not uniformity. Diversity must still exist within the body. But we've got to realize and remember, guys, and this is so important, at a college age, you've got to remember this morning that you and I, as members of the body of Christ, are part of something bigger than ourselves. And that stops us saying, I don't like the way the church does this, this, or this. I'm part of something bigger than myself. I'm part of a community that's centered around Christ. These believers were not only marked by shared belief, but in verse 45, they were marked by shared benevolence. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. United believers were marked by united benevolence. A diversity of people brought a diversity of needs. Remember, many of the pilgrims had stayed on. They had joined this church, and so as needs arose, now that's really important, as needs arose, periodically people began to sell parts of their property and possessions and they used the proceeds to meet the needs of others. Now, we've got to understand this wasn't that everyone sold everything and lived communally like separatists in some kind of extremist camp, nor was there any hint of Christian communism or socialism that this was something wealthy believers were forced to do. Rather, as Acts 5 shows us from a negative point of view, this was voluntary, this was selfless, this was acts of generosity whereby individuals sold personal possessions to meet needs as they arose, as they seen a family that was struggling, as they seen another believer who needed something, they looked at their possession and said, well, you know, if I sold that, I could give that to help them out. As need arose, Someone took it upon themselves to meet that need. And what we find here is this early church was both aware and active in meeting needs. And while this specific pattern to meeting needs didn't really continue beyond Acts 5 of selling possessions and so on, the scriptural principle did. Romans 12 and 3, Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13 and 6, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 1 John 3 and 17, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This was a principle that would go on to permeate the church, that the church would be marked by shared benevolence. They looked after each other. What's church about? I want to say one of the things church is about is meeting the needs of other believers. You might not have a lot right now. You're in college. I get that. I'm not asking you to sell a house. You probably don't have a house or a car. That's not what the, the, the principle is here. It, it, it's, it's a principle of caring practically for one another, not turning a blind eye to needs, but seeking to show benevolence. This is what it means to be part of a community. It's living for others. It's sacrificing for others. It's being sensitive to the needs of others. 
What a challenge as we consider our our possessions, our resources. We've got to ask the question, how how tightly do I hold them? How tightly do I hold those? Do we hold them so tightly that we, we don't offer them to God? As the need arises of a fellow student, well, somebody else will get that. If we have the ability, there should be a a benevolence in our heart. We've got to begin to cultivate a heart of benevolent generosity that loves to give more than than receive. Blessing is found in such an attitude. And what a time in college to begin to cultivate a a heart of benevolence. Very quickly as we close, as we think about church being about community, there was shared belief Verse 44, there was shared benevolence. In verse 45, but this community was marked by shared blessing. Verses 46 through 47, and day by day attending the temple together, there's that word again, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Day by day literally means every day, They enjoyed blessings of being together. We know that this daily meeting of the church soon died out, and it's not practical to meet literally as a church day by day. But we read that they were together again. Where were they together? Well, we read in verse 46 that they were together publicly in the temple, probably in the temple courts. But they were also together privately in their homes, Somebody has said maybe in the temple courts they were reaching people in the homes they were teaching. What does that tell us about the church? It tell us, tells us the church is not about this building. It's not just about coming together here on a Sunday. That's part of it. We see the, the place and the priority that hospitality had in the early church. It spilled out into the home. Remember what I said at the start? The church is about people, Christ's people, investing in each other's lives, not just coming to church once a week, but being in each other's lives, being in each other's homes or dorms. Please knock before you go into someone's dorm. Somebody said to me yesterday, yeah, this girl just just kept walking into my dorm. That's not practicing fellowship, all right? Let's practice courtesy as well. But they spend time together. We see holistic, organic, real world, real life fellowship. What did they do in each other's homes? Did they criticize the preacher or talk about how imperfect their church was? No. With glad and generous hearts, they joyfully ate together, remember Jesus together, study together, praise together. Simply, they shared blessing together. And you know, those who hosted meals and families who often came together for meals in the early church, there was a special bond that formed in that little community. Do you know it was a, a heinous sin to gossip about anybody who came to that meal with you? You see, they just wanted to invest in each other. And you know, the simplicity of this scene is just so refreshing. There's not a lot of stuff happening. It's just believers being together, eating together, praying together. Do you know, guys, 
you're at an aging stage, you can do that. Open your dorm. Go to dinner. Take someone out this afternoon who's new. Spend time together. Share the blessing of being a believer in Christ together. And you see, when our focus is less on programs and preferences and particulars and more on people and the person of Jesus, then our experience of church will be so much more blessed. I know I'm guilty of all, often focusing on what the church is not about. I'm getting frustrated with those things. The testimony of this first church was both exemplary and effective. They had favor with all people and the Lord added to their church. They served as a good model for Christianity. They experienced the favor from men and growth by God. Here's the thing, there's nothing fancy about this primitive church model. Nor was this the perfect church. Perfect church doesn't exist. If you find the perfect church, leave it because you'll only ruin it. It doesn't exist. We're not perfect people. We're not a perfect community, but one day we will be as we were singing about. But when commitment and community are high on our list, then the church will function much more as God intended. May God help us to think better and more biblically about what the church is. From Acts chapter 2, there's a commitment to teaching, there's a commitment to fellowship, there's a commitment to worship, there was community, there was shared belief, They were shared benevolence. And as a result, they got to share blessing together. Father, we want to thank you for your church this morning. We thank you that though it's not perfect, we thank you we have a perfect head in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that someday soon he will present the church spotless before his throne. But until that day, Father, help us think well about church. Lord, help us to be committed to the church, committed to the activities and the things that are that are put on here. Lord, help us to put ourselves at the feet of teachers. Lord, help us to see church as a community where we might show benevolence to those around us and realize that we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves. Maybe even as a result of this message this morning, it might please you to add to the church, maybe those here who don't yet know the Lord, they would come and repent and truly be added to the church For it's in Jesus' name we pray.